Hello, welcome to another Use of Force. This week we're in Lower Bay, Brooklyn, and the following incident that Jesse is about to read the Use of Force report for took place in the Brighton Beach area on Avenue Y and 26th Street. At approximately 1927 hours on Friday, October 3rd, 2014, seven officers responded to a 911 call for an armed dispute occurring within the confines of the 61st precinct. The first two officers on the scene were met by a female who informed them that her son was in her apartment armed with four knives and threatening to kill her. The officers had responded to the same address earlier in the evening as the subject had choked his mother but fled before the police arrived. With no access through the front door, according to the female victim, the officers moved to the rear of the building where they observed the suspect on an upper level. Upon being challenged by the armed officers, the suspect re-entered the building and locked the door behind him. The officers, supported by recently arrived colleagues, unlocked the door with a key and entered the apartment. The officers discovered the subject seated on the couch with four knives in front of him. When ordered by the officers to raise his hands, he instead grabbed the knives, two in each hand, and stood. The suspect then began daring the officers to shoot him before advancing towards them. The officers retreated until they could go no further, and one was forced to discharge his service weapon, striking the subject in the chest. The subject was removed to the hospital where he was pronounced dead on arrival. Subject toxicology revealed the presence of alcohol, narcotics, and marijuana. Right, so this is Dennis Volchkin. He was 28 years old. And, you know, the most striking fact that comes out about this is the, uh, the presence of four knives, which is, yeah, just indicates to me the absence of mind of someone. Yeah. At that moment. Well, yeah, I, so Dennis's mom, Lilia, who of course was the person that had called the police both earlier in the day and later, after this all happened, she was very upset and ultimately filed a lawsuit against the city of New York, naming all these police officers. But part of her, her feeling was that None of the knives that he had were, you know, they weren't big knives. It wasn't like he was coming towards them with a knife. He was holding four knives. And it's like, you know, if you think about it, I don't know how I could possibly hold four knives, two in each hand, and actually control the situation. Right. That doesn't seem like much of a dangerous situation. That seems unruly and I mean I, I think I would be nervous if someone with four knives was coming towards me but more because I it would feel erratic than right what you could actually do with that many sharp objects in your hand sure so I think 
since I just mentioned that Dennis's mom ultimately filed a lawsuit against the city of New York, I think this is a good direction to take this. Uh, just the history of Dennis and Lilia. There had been multiple other times that the police had been called to their residence about similar situations. Uh, four times between 2004 and 2009, resulting in two arrests of Dennis, both times for assaulting his mother. It was unclear what happened on those other additional two times, but it was, you know, they had also been called to that location. So it seems as though there was some kind of familiarity between the police and the family. Right. And I would assume that's probably part of why the mother felt comfortable to call. She probably didn't expect that it would end with her son being killed. She probably expected that it would end in a similar manner to how it had in the past. Mm-hmm. Dennis also had 11 prior arrests for multiple different incidents. A number of them involved some kind of like operating of a motor vehicle while intoxicated or there were also some additional violent incidents that were reported on but you know that again like like we've seen this before that shows that he's been in and out of the system and something's going on you know, and, and isn't solving the problem. Right. This was different than a lot of times when we see that there's someone that's been involved with the police before, and especially when it involves a domestic issue, there's often a very clear reporting on mental health. In this case, there wasn't. Um, there's really no mention of Dennis's mental health. There's some reporting on just his personal life. He had recently gotten engaged and he had been working at his mother's optical shop in Bath Beach. But there was, yeah, no, no mention of mental health. Although part of the lawsuit and further investigation that was done by the police office or by the police department on this incident and of the officer who ultimately shot Dennis Vulcan. There was in that report a quote, the officer's tactics were not sound. They should have requested additional resources but instead engaged the armed perpetrator who was isolated and contained inside the house and created a situation which resulted in the necessity to fire. And that, earlier in that report, that is speaking about the violation of a protocol to call the police department's specially trained emergency services unit for dealing with an emotionally disturbed person who is in a confined space yeah so even though there's not mention publicly from the family about 
Dennis's mental health in a situation like this, it's just assumed by the NYPD that this is an emotionally disturbed person. Right. In that moment, at least. Yeah. And the way that it was handled, it, it was found to not be appropriate. The city ended up paying 435000 in 2015. Yeah. Now, of course, despite there being definitive statement that this is not the appropriate way to handle things that is not the message the message that's being communicated to the officer right so the officer in question here is officer richard moore he works there at the 61st precinct and there's a number of different reports and and times when he's been interviewed and in each of these times he says in a different way you know he thought he did nothing wrong his supervisors have told him he did nothing wrong he did have to do some firearm retraining in 2015 after the lawsuit was settled but he still didn't feel like he had done anything wrong and him and another officer were recognized at a gathering of the police fraternal organization, the Honor Legion. Yeah. After this incident. Yeah. So further, yeah, praising him instead of making it clear that this was not appropriate. Right. Which is not a unique situation based on the incidents we reviewed during our time doing this. Right. This is at least the third, possibly fourth instance of an officer being rewarded as a consequence of their actions. Right. And I think in this case in particular, it's, it's particularly upsetting to me because there's clearly a disconnect even within the police force. You know, the, the reporting and the investigation on this case happened through the police force. And those are the people that very clearly said he did not handle this situation correctly. It was because of him that it escalated to the encounter that it did. And if he had done it differently, there's a good chance that it wouldn't have escalated to that. They wouldn't have had to shoot their gun and Dennis wouldn't have died. Right. But then for whatever reason, like at some point in that translation over to Richard Moore, it's not communicated in the same way. So on one side of the police force doing the, the investigating, it's showing that he was not in, in the right. But then when it goes to his supervisors and to him, he is left with the impression that he did nothing wrong. Right. And it may be worth noting, it's completely it, it's not entirely clear if there's some correlation, but we've seen this a couple of times in recent use of force reports we've done, but the, t the timeline, this incident took place in October of 2014, and the Eric Garner incident, which was nationwide news, took place just a few months prior. Mm. And we've seen instances of there being a robust police response to 
uh, applaud uh, so, uh, officers in order to maybe serve as a counter to that incident. And perhaps this was another one of those instances. Yeah. Where, or, you know, maybe the, the, the Eric Garner instance was a bit of a, maybe a, an unknown sea change, certainly both in terms of the public perception of the police officers, but perhaps in how the police officers now respond as a consequence to justify their methods and to, uh, you know, legitimize themselves to their, both their internal forces and people that support them. Right. Yeah, I mean, we do, we do see that a lot. We've talked about it before on here that the police system operates sort of as this brotherhood where they support their own. And, you know, when you just hear that, it's not, that doesn't sound so bad. But then when you're talking about people going around killing people and then being praised for that, it's pretty bad. I don't find that to be acceptable. Sure. Well, it, I mean, it, uh, yeah. And it's not only that, that is unacceptable baseline, but it's also just, it's, it's, uh, it's not creepy, but it feels like just the idea, just the, the echo chamber of yeah. reassuring behavior where the, the officer in question refuses to even acknowledge the report. Yeah. Yeah. In one of the, I guess I, I didn't say this, but in one of the articles that I read, the reporter clearly asked him if he had read it and he said no. And he would, he said, there's no reason to read it. If there's something bad, I'm sure they'll tell me. Right. But like, I kind of now know that that's not true. Right. I can see from just researching these different incidents, I can see that they're not telling their officers if they've done something bad. So I don't know, you know, he's being willfully ignorant or it's just, you know, whatever it is he doesn't doesn't want to be reprimanded at all well i mean i don't think that's a unique to police or you know characteristic people if they're going to make a mistake that's quite literally fatal but really in any mistake they don't they don't want to know that they've made a mistake and if there's a community big enough to support their actions and allow them to live in this environment of parallel reality yeah. then they're going to choose that one because they made this fatal decision and they're going to have to live with it for the rest of their life. Right. You know, whether or not they feel some sort of undercurrent of guilt or doubt or anything, I guess it really depends on the person and their ability to compartmentalize things that they've done. Right. And, you know, whether or not they're going to live in that shame or guilt area of their brain and whether you know there is it there's a very small part of me that does understand that if someone has this heavy layer of guilt or shame or you know just negative self-awareness that 
it could potentially hinder their ability to do their job. But I think that is particularly within this setup where no one has to feel those feelings. If that was more natural and if that was part of the process of growing the force and retraining people when there's mistakes made and if it was more common to point out mistakes and didn't sort of single someone out and separate them from the pack, then I don't think it would be a problem. But because right now it's just not happening, it seems like impossible. Right. So there's one more thing I want to just touch on before we wrap this particular incident up. While I was researching this, I checked on a website that has been something that I check on for all of these, but isn't doesn't always have information. It's a website called Capstat, and it lists the lawsuits and it lists the salary history and it lists the hours and overtime and overtime salary history and it also lists complaints for each officer in the NYPD and it's not a comprehensive list I don't believe which is why there's not always information but in this case Richard Moore was listed on there. He has two lawsuits that he's named in. This one, which settled for $435,000. And another one in 2016, which I couldn't figure out what had actually happened. I couldn't find any information about that particular lawsuit. It was uh, New York City against Abdu Kanatova and that settled for $60,000. And then he also had a complaint filed against him in December of 2018 for abuse of authority, failure to provide his RTKA card, which is basically a police business card with their badge number and whatnot. And he failed to provide that to a 48-year-old white woman. And, and sorry, that was actually on a website called ProPublica, not on Capstat. But what I also found on Capstat when I clicked through to the 61st Precinct is that as of 2018, the 61st Precinct had 34 police officers. Of those, only 14 have no lawsuits, 16 have one lawsuit, three officers have two lawsuits, and one officer, Paul F. Ferrella, has had three lawsuits since 2015. When I clicked through, he actually had seven lawsuits total since 2008, but had been on the force since 2000. So I'm not sure if there was anything missing between 2000 and 2008. But that, I don't know, that just seemed, that seemed like high numbers to me. Yeah. And I guess I... That seems like the numbers of lawsuits that should be for the entire city, not just one precinct. Yeah. And then for one officer to have that many. Yeah. Yeah. And, certainly... and during that time, not only does he have these lawsuits, but his salary is going up by about $10,000 a year. 
they're still working overtime hours, which they get paid even more for. Right. There, it doesn't seem like there's any sort of, like, it doesn't seem like anyone cares. Right. I mean, this one guy was listed on seven lawsuits, five of which are settled, two are unsettled, totaling $187,500 that have already been paid. Right. And like I said, two already pending, or still pending. Yeah. And there are other officers listed on every single one of those lawsuits. It's not just about this particular officer. Yeah. But I can't, I can't imagine having a job where I've cost my job $187,000. Right. And I'm still getting a $10,000 raise every year. Yeah. Well, because the job isn't a profit-making institution, it's the taxpayer. And it's like not the same type of cost, but it should be right. considered as much. Yeah, I mean, right. that's- and, he, and here we are, you know, our city's in a deficit and right. this information is new to, to be public. So, so I, part of why I don't really know, it sounds crazy. I don't know if, I don't know what the other precincts looks, look like. I didn't get a chance to look at that this week. I'd like to look into that some more now that I've seen this. But I know that a lot of this information became public only just this past summer when 50A was repealed, right. which was a big deal in New York City. And I do remember during that time hearing the police argument for having it repealed was that, you know, people aren't going to be able to understand what it is that they're reading. They're going to assume things that aren't true. They're going to see these numbers that aren't going to make sense to them. And it's going to look worse than it is. But, you know, that 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 could be true to some extent. But it could also just be talk. Right. It could also just be that, you know, they know that it is bad. So they yeah. think it's going to look bad because yeah. it is. Well, yes, it's not beneficial for them to have any additional information out there. There's no, no there's no at this point with all the stances that they're taking, it's not beneficial. Now, if they were to totally change their perspective on how they're dealing with the public and how they're presenting problems within their organization, then yes, that could be an asset. But that's not where they are right now. So. Hopefully we can get to a place where that can change. But at a minimum, at least we have access to this information. And I guess, you know, we don't know for sure whether 34 is a lot for one precinct, but boy. We don't know for sure if 25 lawsuits over oh, right. 34, 34 officers. 34 is the number of officers. 25 is the number of lawsuits for one precinct, so. But well, yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm interested in that. I'd like to research it a little bit more. Right. I'm grateful to this website, Capstat, and also to the ProPublica website that they've compiled this information in a really easy to read and easy to click through format. Yeah. So yeah, we'll look into it and maybe in the next couple of weeks we'll have more information on, you know, not whether or not necessarily it's good or bad or right, but whether or not, you know, what it looks like in comparison to the rest of the city, at the very least, I think we can find out soon. Right. All right. That's it for this week. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you have more information on this use of force instance or you're 
interested in discussing more or learning more, please don't hesitate to contact us. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.